Hey everyone, welcome to Praise Dionysus. Praise him! Hi, it is Jake. Um, for this episode it will just be Jake. It is just Jake, with the appropriate Will and Grace honouring hand gesture. Uh, and yeah, and, and if it just being me for this episode uh, really, really infuriates you, um, I'll see you in the next episode. Um, and I get it. I'm just letting you know. Uh, yeah, uh, it's still, an, it's another episode of Jake and Jamesy's Chuckle Fest, despite the absence of that blonde guy that I host this show with. Um, which means we're still talking about Melbourne International Comedy Festival shows of 2023. Uh, and in this episode, I'll be talking to you about Woe Alyssa 5 by Cole and Phil, We're New Here by Hensby and Beckett, and A Night Out with Saul Cav by Saul Kavanagh. Uh, yeah, I'll speak to you again in just a second. Hey, hi, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Hi. Um, yeah, so it's episode 69, um, you know, from sex, but I, I, it would be tacky to dwell on that. And I won't because I, I don't know, I certainly feel like because of, you know, 69ing, we've really turned 69 into the Monica Lewinsky of numbers. And I think that's inappropriate and unfair. How are you? So yeah, James is not here. I've got like official word from him that <laughs> he's going to be like out for about a fortnight in terms of like seeing shows and being here with me. Um, but yeah, it's also been a while since we've seen him. So it does not necessarily mean that your theory about him being some sort of werewolf is not untrue, a normal werewolf or a reverse werewolf, which is a thing that I have just come up with. Um, and you'd be a wolf during the day and a person at nighttime. Um, I think I'd get a lot more done if that were the style I went with. Also, there's no reason that I can't have just murdered him and hid him in my crawl space. Um, and I'm currently on the run. This would be a pretty decent alibi. Um, hey, <laughs> um, I will get through this quickly in terms of like me talking about my week. I will dwell on the shows, don't you worry. But in terms of like the last few days that I've had since um, recording that, like a surprisingly like <laughs> like erotic episode with Elizabeth Brennan last time, um, which honestly would have made a much more appropriate episode 69, um, which again, I'm not dwelling on because of the Lewinsky thing. Um, but uh, yeah, no, the, in the last couple of days, yeah, what's even happened? A bunch of stuff, I guess <laughs> all I'll point out, and again, I'm like racing through it for you. Um, I finished Lauren Graham's memoir. She wrote another memoir. I enjoyed the one called Talking As Fast As I Can, which was, yeah, fixated a lot on her experience doing like the revival of the Gilmore Girls, because <laughs> she's the mother from the Gilmore Girls, if you're not aware of who this very important person is. That was a really good book. I enjoyed it a lot. She's released another one called Have I Told You This Already? Which almost seems to admit that maybe these are just all the offcuts of <laughs> her previous memoiric effort. Um, and it, yeah, super duper felt that way. Like, again, I super really love Lauren, but I just think she's out of stories, or at least she's keeping the ones that she should tell, be telling us close to her chest and sharing them amongst her close friends. Because these ones, my goodness, there was like... There was like a chapter was about her accidentally stealing a top from a fancy store. There was one about her starting to make marmalade and then stopping making marmalade. Um, and there was one that was all from the point of view of an elderly character that she invented <laughs> uh, for for the, the purpose of like a joke in her, in her last memoir. Um, and I'm not one to skip chapters, but my word, I, I skipped that chapter. But yeah, again, <laughs> I want more from her. I wish she'd talked more about her divorce. Uh, 
yeah, but this one, I, I think you can you can all sit that one out. Uh, anyway, but yeah, what else? What else? Um, oh, and I was also like, yeah, there was one more thing I wanted to bring up with the fact of like, yeah, I was a guest on Friend of the Pod, um, Connor Conk Dariol, who has been a co-host here a number of times and will continue to be, I'm sure. Um, he, he, of course, has his own podcast with his pal William Boyd. And yeah, I, I'm on the uh, the recent episode that's just come out. So if you want to hear me talk to different people, in this instance, people as opposed to just you, which of course is my favorite guest of all time. Um, but yeah, as opposed to me, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, monologuing with you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm. Why am I so long windedly describing the concept of talking to a real life person that I can see in the room with me? Me talking to Connor and Will. Um, that's an opportunity that you have to listen to if you want to. Um, yeah, so the latest episode of Friend of the Pod. Um, anyway, so in terms of like the last chunk of days since my encounter with Elizabeth, um, I'll give it like, I'd say 14 stars because I've never seen it, but I imagine that there must be some sort of banner for Stars Hollow where Rory and Lorelai live. Um, for every year in their lives. Um, and I imagine that's how many stars are on that little banner. So that's what I'm going to go with. Great. Yeah, again, thank you for sticking around. <laughs> and yeah, let's let's talk about some theater together. Hey, how's it going? Uh, hi. <laughs> so me and beautiful British Johnny went to the Westin because there are rooms there that they do shows in sometimes. <laughs> uh, but I won't dwell on that, which may surprise you. Uh, yeah, so we went upstairs to head to the space. Um, oh, on the way there, ran into Matthew Webb, always a delight, and he had a pal that I met. You would not believe how quickly me and this person started talking about Amelia Bassano. <laughs> um, or maybe you would believe that because, I don't know, I am socially crippled and you're intimately aware of that. <laughs> but yeah, got to talk about Amelia Bassano. Always, always a joy. <laughs> uh, yeah, went upstairs, stood in line, met an usher, thought we knew each other. Is this a story? Not technically. Uh, yeah, and then eventually we started going inside. In terms of Wawalissa, so it is a show. It's Wawalissa 5. Um, James and I each saw 3 and 4. <laughs> um, I don't know what happened in 1 and 2. Maybe they were a whole different beast. But yeah, so this is the third of the five. What's a five version of a trilogy? I don't know. Um, a quintilogy? I actually ran into Cole and Phil while they were pamphleting for this show, uh, maybe like a week before I saw the show. I had like already like got tickets to it, but I ran into them while they were pamphleting on the street. They stopped me. I was like, I've already got tickets to this. Also, I think you're really great and I'm looking forward to seeing the show. I thought the conversation went fine. There's no evidence that surfaced since to suggest that it was just like, a, you know, just a parade of faux pas. I think it went fine, but I always leave those sorts of conversations feeling like I've lied to them, even though it was red hot truth. Maybe I'm just saying this out loud so you listen to it and verify the fact that I wasn't deceiving these people who are essentially strangers. And why does it matter to me <laughs> that you feel that way? I don't know. Again, socially crippled. We went inside, we sat down. It was like a series of semicircles extending from a little risen platform in the corner. It was the same space where I saw Will McKenna's show, uh, which had a title, I forget what it was, but on the poster, he was holding a bunch of phones. I've brought it up in, in this way before, and I think I had the same amount of information. <laughs> uh, went inside, sat down. The show starts um, on, like, on screen. There's like a TV screen at the back of the little like risen platform they're performing on, and it's showing like a montage of That's Life covers like you know that magazine that's life i don't know if it was a part of your childhood but it was pretty central to mine central is like he's overstating it but my mother really really enjoyed i don't think she really read the stories she was more in it for the puzzles and entering the competitions um but yeah but the stories they're definitely like like 
near supermarket registers and in 7-Elevens and like Coles Expresses that you've been to. And like all of the article titles are insane. And this montage that we're watching before the two guys come out to perform is really highlighting some of the absurdities. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was nice to reflect because it's always like, and I will not be able to come up with good examples for this, but it's like, oh, my stepfather ate my daughter and then I married his wife. I, <laughs> things to that effect. I'm sure you know what this is and I'm sure I'm rambling for no reason. But but it was nice to think about this magazine again because it made me go on this like little private side adventure. Like after I saw this show, I was like, what the fuck? Like, are we just like, do we all see, is it the sort of thing, is it like wrestling? Like is that's life like wrestling for housewives and gay guys where it's like, we all secretly know it's not real, but we act as if it is and it still elicits like the same sort of emotions from us. So I went on sort of like a little gallivanty through the internet, <laughs> which yes, is how you should refer to, you know, Googling something. And I uh, wanted to see if that's life was real. And I, I also wanted to find out if I was the, like the last one in the dark, you know, quack, quack. But yeah, no, so I found this like court case that happened where they published this story that was essentially like, um, woman says that she would rather die than um, kill her unborn baby. And the story was like, this woman was pregnant, she was gonna have a baby. And then the story laid out the facts as being like, the mother who already had like two sons was gonna happily let herself die through pregnancy and childbirth in order to save the life of her unborn daughter and leave her three children motherless. And then between the story getting written and it getting published, the mother that the story was about kept trying to get into contact with the reporter to tell her that the story wasn't true, um, but she never managed to get through to the reporter. So the story got published and was inherently like not factual because it was a much more like convoluted tale of her having breast cancer and the risk was to the baby, but never really to the mother provided she was monitored correctly. And, and yeah, no. And so there was a whole court case about how that's life had potentially deliberately or through like journalistic negligence permitted this story to be more sensational than in fact it was. I don't know. So I suppose that sort of suggests that all these that's life stories are true or I was bamboozled. <laughs> I don't know, but I don't know. Whether you like it or not, I now believe everything in that's life is true. And I'm also starting to think that maybe those wrestlers are fighting for real. Um, so the show began, they come out and they, the two of them sing this song about how nowadays everybody wants to sound like a, and I'm flagging this and then saying it and then going to re-flag it afterwards. But it's like, everyone wants to sound like a faggot, which I'm allowed to say because I, you know, I'm part of that community. <laughs> I insist. <laughs> the premise of the song, of course, being that sounding like a sassy gay guy <laughs> is a thing that suddenly is like, not just trendy, but also a thing that people are just doing for fun. And it seems like a thing that people are very comfortable co-opting. And I don't know, it's just, you know, <laughs> I think a very worthy thing to be talking about as was evidenced by like, it's not, I don't know, irrelevant in terms of the conversation that we recently had with Kane and about Ned Kelly, but that's a whole thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. What was interesting, I thought on top of, obviously I find this all to be very like interesting, fertile ground for conversation. Um, but yeah, towards the end of the song, <laughs> this point comes where it's like, they're singing, everybody wants to be a faggot. They leave out the faggot part and they point the microphone at a lady in the the front row and then she says the word and they respond to it with shock comedic shock of course because you know 
<laughs> they're great performers and they understand what comedy is. But um, yeah, but then they went on to say that I, I think maybe I saw like the fourth or fifth show and they said that up until then, every single person they'd point the, they had pointed the microphone at had said the word as well. And that makes me uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And like, I don't know, it's similar, I suppose, to like, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but when like Kendrick Lamar pulled up that audience member during one of his concerts and then got her to sing one of his songs that had the N-word in it a bunch of times and she just said the N-word a bunch of times. And I think she was a white lady. She definitely wasn't like a black lady. Uh, yeah, and people were pretty mad at her. That does to me feel a little bit like entrapment. It's still, of course, not right. But there's a level of, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I'd behave on stage at a concert. I definitely wouldn't end up saying the N-word, I can promise you that, but I also would not be like, I don't know, <laughs> I wouldn't be like Lady Gaga-ing in A Star Is Born. I'd be somewhere in the middle spectrum, being neither racist nor getting a record deal is my guess. Um, but yeah, that was just a moment that occurred. Um, Something else real notable that the two of them accomplished, um, where they, they did tre like pretty tremendous justice to that famous Julianne Moore monologue from Magnolia, where she <laughs> gets really frustrated in the pharmacy. And uh, it just got me afterwards sort of like reflecting on, you know, the, what, a, what a clever, like fun thing to do pop culturally. And then got me thinking about what my favorite monologues are. And thank you firstly for asking me, that's very sweet and inquisitive of you. I have two answers for you. Uh, the first one is Renee Zellweger's monologue monologue in Down With Love, like towards the end where she tells Ewan McGregor her entire plan, I just think is quite remarkable. And my more theatrical response to, again, your very polite question, um, is in Phaedra, where the, it's like the Helen Mirren, because it's an adaptation, but it's, yeah, so it's like the Helen Mirren one that the National Theatre did. And there's this monologue that happens, I don't know how well you know this story of Phaedra and like stepmotherly incesty stuff. It's very, very good, especially this production. I love it so much. It has Dominic Cooper in it from the History Boys movie that I can't watch because of James Corden and Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia 2. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so that towards like the end of the play, this messenger comes in to tell the tale of how one of the characters has been like, I don't know, just murdered, <laughs> but like brutally Oh, like like ancient Greekly murdered, you know. So it's it's a, like a like a long thorough, like gargantuan grand tale of death. Uh, but yeah, comes in and it was like it was during that monologue that this this messenger delivers that this play went. I had to watch it from like on like the National Theatre streaming service, of course. But it was during this monologue that this play went from something that was already blowing my mind to being something that I knew would stay with me forever. Like it just it was yeah ah. Oh. <laughs> what a production. See it if you can. Uh, anyway, an element of Woe Alyssa 5 uh, that I really, really loved and found so stimulating and interesting. And I think what would, and again, as I've said to you and others many times before, I really can't stand rankings or favorite things. But I'd say of the two, three, if you include James's perspective on his Woe Alyssa experience, um, but of the three Woe Alyssas that we as Praise Dionysus co-hosts have praise him, have experienced. Um, I'd say this is my favorite thing, certainly that I've seen these two guys do together because it they delved quite honestly and beautifully and articulately and comically into their experience of going from long-term boyfriends to now being <laughs> like friends. <laughs> and how they got from boyfriends to friends and what it's like to be that way. Um, and now what it's like for the two of them to live together with Cole's new boyfriend. Um, 
And yeah, every moment they spent telling us this story of, you know, of love and heartbreak and growth and, and you know, love, like love twice. Because, you know, the romantic sort and then, you know, all the other sorts is what I was trying to encapsulate with my clumsy speaking. Uh, was just so lovely and like honest and unexpected because, I don't know, I walked in and <laughs> saw that slideshow and was very ready for it to be like, you know, snarky, frothy gay comedy and which of course I was open to but yeah I was just like so grateful for this like <laughs> these like shards of really lovely funny honesty that I, I that I just found so interesting uh because yeah that sort of stuff is just like I could spend days just you know sitting around talking about that sort of thing I think maybe you could too but yeah I was just yeah really grateful for that inclusion because it was unexpected and so honest and lovely and yeah it's a credit to them and uh, i don't know in, in, just like in terms of like i think there's something <laughs> really special i think about people that are funny being very honest and vulnerable i just think it's and look this could all be <laughs> on top of me being completely misled by the entire thing for all i know they fabricated the vast majority of what they told me about their breakup in their current situation but assuming what they said was largely factual i just think there's something yeah so wonderfully telling and engaging and human and I don't know, to me at least, additionally fascinating when two really funny people, like the two of them are, are vulnerable on stage or off it. Because I think the way that people cope with tragedy and sadness and misery is so deeply connected to their experience of comedy. Because I don't know, I guess I have this working hypothesis, I suppose, of like the thing that draws us to comedy and the type of comedy that we appreciate is, I don't know, I think kind of like melded into our relationship with existence itself you know and I think people that are drawn to comedy have a really sort of like skewiff and fascinating and maybe largely unconscious relationship with existentialism or something <laughs> that is inherent in the reason that they are funny and they're engaging to listen to and I think I don't know, in many ways, I sometimes feel like comedy is quite nihilistic, like just in its nature. But for that reason, I was very grateful for these two very funny, articulate men to be talking about heartbreak <laughs> because it's it's a really amazing vessel for that type of story to exist in and to get to see people like that tell that type of story, I think is is, is always so rewarding for an audience. And in terms of the way that it engages with my taste, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> the dead center of my tongue, I suppose. And... <laughs> and yeah, just to dwell on it, I just think it's it's really, really fortunate those times where something really fascinating happens to a person that is kind of one of the ideal candidates for relaying that story to you. I yeah, Like, if you see enough cabarets or you talk to enough people, you'll certainly encounter that sort of devastating experience of like, that is a fascinating, really, really interesting thing that happened to you. What a shame it is that you aren't very good at telling this story. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was very grateful that Woa Five was was not an example of that type of theatrical tragedy. <laughs> Uh, something else peculiar happened? Something else? Did something else peculiar happen? Maybe this is the first peculiar thing that happened. No, let's say that woman being comfortably vaguely homophobic is the first peculiar thing that happened. The second one was, as I said, I went to this show with beautiful British Johnny, uh, and we were sitting there, and then maybe like a third of the way through the show, Johnny whispers to me, I have to go, and then just started like leaving. Um, and I'm, I'm not bringing this story up to embarrass Johnny, because at this point, he... <laughs> I don't think this story lives as as trauma in his mind, but yeah, had to leave, left, uh, 
Cole and Phil were super lovely about it and continued the show very professionally. But yeah, no, Johnny apparently had that experience of like, I don't know if this is a thing that everyone goes through, but you know the thing where you think like maybe you're dying? He described it to me very well and I definitely knew what he was talking about. That thing where it feels like, oh, I feel like my consciousness is like slowly draining from my skull and is slipping down my spinal cord and I think my vision is about to dip back into my eyes and I think this is what death is. <laughs> or at least what dying is. He thought that was happening and at this point we've traced it back to him potentially eating all of the Japanese food in Melbourne that evening. <laughs> but yeah, that's that. And that of course is not a slight on Japanese food. It's a slight on gluttony. <laughs> but yeah, no, he left. And it felt remiss not to bring that up. Partly because I of course had that like, that pang of guilt of like, am I supposed to follow my pal out that door? Or do I stay? Because I have to talk about this wonderful show on a podcast that I host. And of course I chose the latter because I host a goddamn podcast. And sometimes I host it alone. And if I don't stay for the rest of this show, what will I even goddamn talk about? <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's just the second peculiar thing that happened at Woa Lissa 5. Ooh, and I also have to bring up, just because it's a pattern and we have to talk about it on this podcast, <laughs> um, it, there was another contribution to the collection of really good jokes about polyamory. Um, yeah, and Cole said that uh, polyamory might exist because the people that do it are so annoying that they have to be dated in shifts. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty solid comedy. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, and I guess I just want to like round this thing out by just bringing up how nice it was to like sit in like, <laughs> like, a, like a cluster of people in a little hotel room, many of whom were gay men. It just felt very nice to feel like I was part of like, <laughs> I don't know, it felt like gay comedy was illegalized and we were engaging in some sort of prohibition related underground comedic I don't know, indulgence. I just enjoyed that feeling. <laughs> Interrogate that if you want. I just thought it was sweet. I liked being around that many gay men who were all giggling with other gay men. <laughs> it was nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, so me and beautiful British Johnny went to the Speakeasy Theatre, which not enough people know about because it's such a wonderful venue. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the first time I went there was when I went to see Marilyn Letter in The Milf Next Door, and I've been obsessed with it ever since. So any chance to go there is <laughs> one that I'm very happy to jump at, and especially if I get to go there and see We're New Here. <laughs> that sounded like a pre-planned segue, but that's just me not talking right. We're New Here by Hensby and Beckett. Uh, their full names being Lily Hensby and Lottie Beckett. Lottie Beckett, so I wanted to like save this conversation for when James was going to be here, because James is a large part of the reason that I even know who Lottie Beckett is, in terms of like how she entered my life, because the first thing that James got to see her in was Club Night um, and he was just like immediately enamored uh, and then yeah now this being my first real chance to spend a lot of time sitting there and watching Lottie be remarkable um, has happened <laughs> uh, yeah so I, I I get the hype I get the love uh, yeah Lottie Beckett's incredible but let's not jump ahead so yeah went in and it's in like I don't know if you've been to the Speakeasy Theatre but we went up the staircase, we waited in that little foyer near the bar, then we went through that little curtain, and we were in that like very first space, which is just, which is like a sweet little fairy light adorned, kind of baby proscenium arch, debatably a thrust. Uh, yeah, but it's like rigorously, uh, rigorously? There's a lot of chairs and couches pointing at this little stage, <laughs> is the clearer way to say the thing that I'm saying. Much like Woe Alyssa 5, they also have a television. They use it for visual aids, which are intended to bolster their arguments because the premise, which it sounds like I am drum rolling up towards, the premise of the show is that the two of them are going to try to convince us that Naura and Sydney are better than Melbourne. We, of course, being in Melbourne and that therefore being, you know, a rather central conflict in terms of 
them delivering their presentation to a bunch of Melbourneites. Clunkily explained, yes. Was I in charge of running their synopsis for the program? No. Was that why? Debatably. <laughs> um, if unclear, Lily is from Nowra, Lottie is from Sydney, and that is integral for you to understand. On top of the excellently utilized television and the visual aids we're in, there was like <laughs> a very like charming additional element, which was that <laughs> they gave us little hand-drawn maps and like diagrams and explanations of like Sydney and of Nowra, which was like, I don't know, I just found that to be very sweet. In terms of them as a comedic duo, it's like so lovely to watch, like for reasons that like, similarly to watching 18 the other day, it was of course just really, really lovely to see two people that really care about each other and two people with, like with a real life functioning, healthy friendship, then performing elements of that friendship on stage is always gonna be like so enchanting to me. But yeah, in terms of like a comic duo, it was nice. And with them obviously being like relatively like quite young performers and being like somewhat early on in their comic career, it was nice to kind of see like the beginning parts of what's gonna be a really fun evolutionary trajectory for them. Uh, just in terms of like getting to see the beginning of like, is one of them a bit of a faux intellectual? Is one of them a bit of, like a bit of a doofus? Like what sort of things do they tease each other about? Uh, yeah, and, and sort of, yeah, getting to see the, the, the things that are going to become even more effective and more enjoyable that they're already doing. It was just fun to see two really talented, funny people at this point. Like if they continue to work together, which of course they should, it's, it was so nice to see them on stage together. Uh, it, yeah, it was fun to see them at this point and to hopefully get to compare that to what they will very quickly evolve into being. Especially with the subject matter of this show being so like intimately about them and being quite vulnerable and open with with, yeah, with this show being something that is born so directly from their experience and from their lives and from their hearts and from their friendship. Uh, for that reason, like even just like it was, it's <laughs> kind of amazing to be able to be like, as an audience member, it'll be great to kind of get to witness this being like a foundational building block in where they head next. Because I don't know if their work is going to always be intended to be as confessionals the wrong word but almost like this show being relatively like documentary style it's amazing to get to see this being what felt like a very exposing revealing peek behind the curtain of their mentalities to then see what they ve like veer into artistically next to know that this is a very honest version of who they are and then if they're going to build any type of hefty characterization on top of this shtick I guess it'll be nice to kind of like have this to reflect upon when they start becoming, you know, Hensby and Beckett more so than they are Lily Hensby and Lottie Beckett. Yeah, for that reason, like as an audience member and one who will continue to be one, uh, it's I'm really grateful for having this version of them in my noggin uh, to carry with me through the rest of their work. Any depiction of drama school I'm immediately into. <laughs> any proposal of like Simpsons movie style doming any particular location, <laughs> I'm also immediately into. Um, there was this like, <laughs> there was this lovely moment where there's, they showed a bunch of like childhood photos, which I will talk about again in like just a second. So, so there's a little teaser for, for what's to come. But there was a moment where Lily was showing a photo of her childhood backyard and talking about how much she loved it, like her backyard in Nowra. And she started crying and it was really beautiful. And I just wanted to flag that as just being like a really memorable, lovely. And as I said earlier, like with this show being so open and vulnerable and generous, that being such a real life moment of <laughs> of emotion and nostalgia is yeah one that I'm sure everyone in the audience 
treasured and is also like a, a testament to how brave what they're doing was, you know, as much as it was a comedy show about <laughs> Melbourne being bad. Uh, it was, it was so many other things too. So that was just super sweet. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. And uh, yeah, on top of that, I also want to flag, like now I very much completely understand and get James's obsession. And now one that I share with Lottie Beckett too, <laughs> to like simplify <laughs> this wonderful performer. There's like a flex of like Elaine Carroll. There's flex of like Judith Lucy. Uh, yeah. And as James harps on about a lot, just a really wonderful talking voice, <laughs> which I'm not going to, you know, get hung up upon because have you heard that thing of like sometimes when like, especially male actors want to undermine like a younger male actor that's coming up behind them, they'll tell that actor that they have a really good speaking voice because it will fuck with their head and make them bad at talking. So I'm not going to do that to sweet, sweet Lottie. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and just the final thing I want to say, which is just like a thing that I thought and it's a thought that I don't think I've had in a play before or any piece of theater before. It was like, with them giving this presentation, a lot of which was, and this is the thing that I was said I was going to come back to, with a lot of it being like, here's a photo of me as a child. Here's another picture of my childhood. Here is a depiction of my past. And the two of them delivering these things as like evidence for their hometowns being fantastic and also using it to support tales they were telling us. It somehow like it created for me this feeling. I was like sitting there in this beautiful little theater space, watching them give these presentations with their television. And somehow it felt like I'd fallen into this like this place where people after they die, they are for some reason tasked with like, you rock up at heaven, which I of course completely believe in. You rock up at heaven and then someone with wings on is like, hi, so you're dead now. And you now have like a week to throw together like an oral presentation telling an audience of, I'm not sure who it would be populated by, um, but you need to tell them about your life and the things that you liked. Here is a television you can use and come back in a week and, and deliver this presentation to us. And it, it had that type of like, <laughs> just, I don't know, like sweetness and nostalgia and fondness. And uh, yeah, that's just where my brain transported to and the way that they were talking about their childhoods. It was just, I don't know, somehow, I, I, I don't know. And the goal wasn't even like necessarily to impress us with any of it or to, <laughs> or, or to put any distinct spin really. I don't know what I'm trying to pinpoint, but like, and part of what was maybe perplexing that was throwing me into this fictional universe was how kind of like unexpectedly generous and earnest and lovely the whole thing was. Like it was also honey coated that it was like, oh, this, we, we, you know, which is, which is a sensation that we're so rarely afforded, you know, like someone that's essentially a stranger being so generous and lovely with their life. Uh, yeah, I think that's why it threw me somewhere fictional because it's so uncommon to feel that way at the theater. Yeah, so... That's Lottie and Beckett's We're New Here. Uh, yeah, keen to see what they get up to next. <laughs> so me and a tall Canadian man went to a venue called Naughty Nancy's, which is on Chapel Street in Paran. Uh, it was super nice. It was like a bar that had been, for the evening at least, sort of repurposed to be a performance space, which was, which was great. Felt bohemian. Felt like the imaginary version of New York that exists in my head. Uh, it was nice. And we were there to see A Night Out with Saul Cav, which is like a funky J-Lo-esque abbreviation of Saul Kavanaugh's name. And he's the very talented musical comedian who plays the piano. <laughs> uh, yeah. And yeah, ended up here because, I don't know, as with many of these you know, theater attending experiences, got an email from him. And uh, based on the information enclosed we're in, it seemed like 
this guy might be in year 11. It's his first sort of like big one man show. Um, and so of course I'm goddamn going. That's so exciting. Like that, uh, that's kind of how I ended up seeing Bailey live with Jan Padinsky <laughs> and me and Elizabeth Brennan were forever changed and will always be grateful for that experience. <laughs> so yeah, so me and tall Canadian man went to Naughty Nancy's and we stood next to the bar and watched this show happen. In terms of me and the Canadians fact-finding expedition while watching this show, like as audience members, it was like hasty and excited and desperate because it seemed as if, because I believe it was opening night that we were there and it seemed like the bulk of the audience was taken up by people that know Saul quite well. So it had this added, <laughs> like the ambience and the environment seemed to have this added thing of like, it almost felt like somebody's like 22nd birthday party, which obsessed with what a, what an ideal way to watch someone before it just felt so nice <laughs> uh, so that's just something to bear in mind so in, in terms of in terms of the, like the fact finding part of it was like he and I wanting to be on the same page as much as possible with these people that clearly love this performer so much. So it's like, okay, how old is he? What does he get up to? Like, does he have a girlfriend? Like they, these sorts of facts of like, I just like, even from like whispers that they were like, <laughs> that like friends of his were saying in the crowd, it's just like, there is a history here. There is a connection here. Like there are stories not getting told. There are stories that they are hoping don't get told. And it's like, this is heaven. I feel like I am a ghost in a family's like living room. And it was perfect. <laughs> uh, in terms of my theory of him being in year 11, I don't think that is true because he is at least 18 because he's very like publicly a fan of drinking vodka raspberries. And that's, that's the extent of that. I'm quite sure he's graduated high school. So if you're keeping tabs on that, you fucking weirdo, <laughs> that has very likely occurred. Uh, this show was so full of like, which I will dwell on in the very near future, another teaser for you. Um, but so much like dark comedy, quack, quack, which uh, anyway, I'll get back to that. But <laughs> uh, just as like one of my favorite sentences that he said was something to the effect of like, he was asking the crowd about kind of their, their like sexual proclivities and sexual successes. And then he had this fantastic sentence where he was like, look at us, we're not fucking anything except our own lives up, <laughs> which I just think is really solid writing. Uh, as I said earlier, he is a musical comedian. He is a pianist, a very, very good pianist. I'm of course not super great judge of how good a pianist is, uh, but you know, just bear that in mind as I continue talking. But yeah, he's a musical comedian, which as I've thoroughly established on this podcast and in my private life, is on one of the lower rungs of the, of the ladder of you know, types of theater I want to ingest. But again, I'm excited to be there. And again, he is a very, very good pianist. And again, I don't know how to judge that, but he was really great. Like his musicianship and his like comedic stylings were like on par with each other. And they were both impressive outside of, outside of his age, outside of the subject matter. It was like, he's really good at the piano and he's really funny. I really enjoy this person's personality. One of the songs that he sang, I, and I'm not just gonna like, I'm not gonna run you through a track list, but like ones that stuck out to me and really <laughs> that I've thought about since seeing the show, there was a song about having sex in the wrong places, which is an activity that I will always advocate for in another effort to stop episode 69 of this podcast from being too 69-y, I will skate past that subject matter. Something that I want to like immediately dive into is his comfort with, and, and his comfort with absurdity and veering into the absurd. Uh, because it's like, it felt experimental. And like for someone to be like so young and coming out of the gate and this being one of his first ever shows or live performances, it was so cool to see him not just trying to like, 
to imitate Bo Burnham or, you know, trying to be like a one-man tripod. Like, it, it was nice to see him being quite theatrically experimental on top of his, yeah, capacity for being so musically impressive. In moments like he did like a, like a, a real-life depiction of, <laughs> is it cake? Uh, which I thought was really well handled. Certainly more engaging than the three minutes I spent trying to watch the real TV show version of, of that same concept. Uh, yeah, he did, did really well. And that was also a really good chance for him to showcase how good he is at improv and crowd work. Uh, something that tall Canadian man and I spent a lot of time after the show talking about. Because we, we spent so much time talking about Saul and his show after we left. We like sat in a bar across the street and dwelled on a few things to do with the performance. And one of them being Saul's comfort with veering into really like dark territory. Quack, quack. Uh, one of them being, <laughs> he took the audience on a guided meditation, like one of those, like, you know, like, like a meditation app where like someone talks to you about things you should do with your hands and things you should think about. And it went to some surprisingly like <laughs> controversial, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, shadowy places. And that was just like a, a breath of fresh air, not in the sense of like the way that it hung in the context and material of the show, but in the way of like, especially somehow, especially with it coming out of the mouth of a like a very young person, it was nice with all the talk of like this TikTok generation being so, and God, it makes me sound like a pensioner to be talking about this as if it's like, oh, well, how good to be shocked that a young person can say things that are mildly racist. But it's like, uh, it was, it's just fun even outside of that dull conversation I was about to instigate with you. It's nice to see a young performer in, let's just say, in the current theatrical climate, I guess, that isn't afraid of doing things that are a bit uh, kind of like off kilter and controversial, even if it seems like maybe it's just for shock value. I just have a real taste for that. <laughs> um, and, and it requires a level of bravery, and I'd say increasingly so, I think. I mean, I'm definitely always going to be advocating for and, uh, yeah, supporting the idea that Fran Leibowitz has that artists... Uh, don't need to have a social responsibility just because I think art is more interesting that way and also I'd say more effective that way. Uh, yeah, and I, I suppose at the moment, uh, at least in this conversation, Saul Kavanagh is my mascot for that idea. <laughs> I really enjoyed and appreciated his <laughs> Saul's song about the demands of appearing masculine and, and, and his celebration of him being a man, <laughs> uh, which sounds simple in concept, but... Uh, was really well executed and one of the one of the goofier song performances of the show. <laughs> um, I have to say too, like, I don't know, <laughs> I had this resurfacing image of like, because of his musical ability and he was wearing like a nice fancy suit um, and him being alone on stage. I don't know, I kept having this thing of like, it felt like he was like the Phantom of the Opera if he were more snarky. And I also just wanna like point out like, after after being on board like the all-terrain vehicle of his like the wild ride of his show uh it was it was cool to like to by the end of it not just feel like yeah, I I'd, I'd sort of gotten to know this young man but uh for the for the end of the show to be like this <laughs> surprisingly moving like even before the very sweet him thanking people for coming and the the people that are responsible for him being as wonderful as he seems to be uh his closing number being like this like very lovely ballad about where like a number of really like beautiful sentences got said. Uh, one of them being like, 
talking about the idea of taking time to think about the choices that have made you distinct, which I, th- I thought was just like a nice way to craft that sentence uh, and the way he considers himself to be a youth disrupting society, which again is a, is a sentence that me and tall Canadian man kept coming back to in our discussion of Saul's show and of Saul as an artist, because it's exciting to see someone of, you know, this looming generation um, who are about to become adults and are about to participate and construct this this society that we're all trapped in and and are gonna fill up you know that portion of the arts industry like the 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 bracket that we refer to as like the emerging artists and it's cool for him to be not just like owning that responsibility that that he's given himself one of one of disruption <laughs> but uh, to to be excited by it and and for that to be in the hands of somebody. Uh, for, for Saul to be excited about causing that type of disruption and for it to be inside of someone who, of whom I've only seen one work of and who is at the very, very beginning of even performing his work live, to see him already be in this place of a desire to be disruptive, of someone with a great deal of musical ability, of someone with a great poetic capacity, to be someone <laughs> who isn't afraid of being like shocking and, shocking and cruel and surprising. Like I think all these ingredients in, in, inside of somebody that is about to inflict their art upon the world. And I just, yeah, these, these are the reasons that, that we couldn't stop having this, like this fun, engaging conversation um, after seeing this show, because it's sort of like one of the major takeaways for the two of us reflecting on Saul's performance was how fun it'll be to see him as he gets a bit older, to see the shows that he that he does next, the things that he says, the things that he does. And and the two of us, yeah, me and tall Canadian man, hoping that he leans into the darkness of what he does, into the experimentality of what he does. I don't know. Even the fact that he was wearing like a, you know, like a, like a fancy suit while he was doing this show. It was just such an odd concoction this night out. And yeah, really promising as well in terms of, what Saul's likely to get up to, which is so exciting. I don't know. Um, and it's the reason that I'll keep going to shows that I get invited to by people that might not have done their VCE yet. <laughs> thank you so much for still being here. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thank you for sticking around. It's been really lovely, been really lovely spending this time with you. Uh, thank you for giving me those, those, you know, this collection of sweet, sweet seconds that make up your beautiful life. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you get back to your day. <laughs> um, as usual, I may already disagree with everything I just said, and friends don't let friends become theatre critics. Um, a reminder that, yeah, I was a guest on Friend of the Pod. If you want to listen to that episode, it exists. Uh, yeah, and listen to it if you want to. Uh, yeah, hope to speak to you really, really soon. Mm-hmm.